Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The local bishop oversees every Catholic ministry in his diocese, and in a particular way, Catholic healthcare. But how can a bishop ensure that a particular healthcare institution is maintaining its character as a ministry of the church and operating in accord with church teaching? This question is becoming ever more relevant as Catholic healthcare institutions increasingly become larger and more integrated into healthcare delivery networks. It is also becoming more relevant as both the culture and government demand that healthcare organizations provide services that conflict with church teaching. One avenue for bishops to pursue is the NCBC's Catholic Identity and Ethics Review Program, or SEER. Today's guest, Dr. John Brahaney, NCBC Director of Institutional Relations, joins me to explain this program and to demonstrate what it offers to the church. John Brahaney, welcome back to our Bioethics on Air podcast. It's great to be back on with you, Joe. Yeah, and John, you have been a guest multiple times before, so we will we will forego the question about your biography. That information is available for all of the NCBC staff, all of our ethicists um, on our webpage. So for any new listeners to the program, that uh, information is available there. So John, let's get right into the meat and potatoes of our discussion today. So what is the Catholic Identity and Ethics Review or SEER program? Uh, Well, it's a newer program that is designed to assess how Catholic healthcare institutions, uh, whether they're hospitals or systems or nursing homes or something else, how they're living out their Catholic identity and uh, demonstrating ethical integrity when it comes to the moral teachings of the church on on health and health care. When, well, why does this NCBC have a SEER program? It goes back uh, to a, a very specific request from the bishops of one state. Uh, now, you and I have been with the NCBC for, you know, up to five years, uh, me five, you, you a little less. But, you know, a the NCBC, over three, yeah. yeah, the NCBC um, got into institutional consultation, something more than the bedside clinical ethical issues, uh, probably about 20 years ago and started to do more and more of them over time. So we've been doing it for a long time, but the bishops uh, of one of one of the U.S. states, which had a has a big Catholic presence uh, in healthcare, came to the NCBC uh, even before I joined and said, We really want to get an apples to apples uh, report and comparison on the Catholic health ministries in our diocese. You know, can you help us to do that? How how would that be done? So uh, it's much, much bigger than evaluating any one organization or even on one one deal uh, or one issue. It's looking very broadly uh, at a number of systems, each of which. Uh, has multiple institutions. So that's why we have it. We designed the program and ran the first pilot starting in 2015. And what's happened over time is we're we're just about done uh, with the original request. It's taken a while because of all the other things we do. But, um, you know, it's it's about five years old, and what's happening is it's beginning to spread uh, as bishops hear about our unique approach. Yeah, I'm 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 interested to um, to hear more about this because I know that there are other identity or mission assessment tools available to Catholic healthcare organizations. I'm thinking like the Catholic Identity Matrix, and I'm I'm sure there's others as well that you can that you could talk about, but. How is the NCBC's SEER program different from some of these other assessment tools? Yeah, um, and we designed the program, uh, you know, to be maximally helpful to bishops, I would say. Uh, You and I have both worked in Catholic healthcare a little bit. We have some experience with 
how some of this works on a daily basis. But we also went out and looked at some of the established programs, and there are really only two uh, that you might say could apply across multiple systems. Uh, it, most places have something internal or specific to them and their mission. Uh, but our program is unique for a couple of reasons. I'd say one, it's built around the, the structure and substance of the ethical and religious directives, which of course the, the US bishops publish uh, and modify from time to time. But we, you know, we base our program on the ERDs. And one thing that makes it very different from some of those other systems, including the Catholic Identity Matrix, is they tend to boil uh, boil their assessment down or they organize their assessment around several major principles, five or six or so major principles like human dignity, respectful workplace, um, you know, quality care, relationship with the church. They, you know, they, they try to distill Catholic identity down uh, into those six principles and then uh, sort of in an internal process, try to delineate, you know, try to measure and report on how they're doing. So our approach, which I said is built around the ERDs, is different because, first of all, it is the ERDs. Right. Second, we can be much more specific uh, because we will go through the ERDs part by part, directive by directive, and assess how a Catholic organization is doing. So I'd say we're, we're even more comprehensive, but we're also more specific. And uh, the third thing, and maybe the most important, is that when the NCBC does this, I would say it's more objective because we are coming in from the outside with fresh eyes, so to speak, and, and looking at how a Catholic organization is doing. Every other assessment is essentially an internal or self-assessment. There's nobody else out there that, that can do this or that does do this. Now, the Catholic Health Association did just come out with a kind of a tool uh, you know, for Catholic healthcare institutions to use, uh, it's really a tool. You know, the Catholic Health Association doesn't go out and evaluate people. You know, they give people tools, and again, they have five or six principles, and they actually have some some other things. So, uh, but anyway, ERD based, uh, very specific and objective. I think that's what makes us different. Yeah. One other uh, kind of a follow up with that. The the NCBC's program is titled the Catholic Identity and Ethics Review. And I, I just like to, to kind of focus on that word ethics for a few minutes. So the NCBC's review is not simply about Catholic identity. It's not about mission, but it's also about sort of the practice. What What is it you do? And I ask this question a bit out of ignorance because I'm not, I, I'm obviously I'm aware of the Catholic identity matrix and some of these others, but I'm not I, I've never used them, but do you know, do, do any of the other assessment tools focus on ethics as well, or are they more focused on, as you said, principles and um, identity and, and mission? Well, I, I think they are significantly focused on mission and actually, um, and this was kind of interesting after we, began implementing our own review. I know some of the people who work with the Catholic Identity Matrix added a component uh, that would allow an institution to look at its diagnosis and treatment codes. Uh, we'll come to that that uh, that element in a few minutes, I think. Yes, we will. Yeah, they, they actually added, you know, sort of a component in, kind of an option in, so that an organization could look at its own performance by looking at certain diagnosis and treatment codes. I think that um, they they just don't get as specific, I would say, uh, or, you know, as we do, because we're looking, again, directive by directive. Uh their principle of human dignity uh, could cut across everything from something in the first part uh, of the directives that uh, people who work in a Catholic health ministry are called to treat people with the compassion of Jesus Christ 
to respect for human life at the beginning uh, and respect for human life at the end. You know, all that encompassed under that principle, respect for human dignity. Uh, we tend to go at it much more specifically in terms of a uh, specific ERD directive, ERD 45 on abortion, right? Or ERD 58 on providing nutrition and hydration uh, as a matter of principle. Uh, anyway, so, um, you know, when you, when you say, do they do ethics? I, I think they would say they do, but it is, um, it's not as specific as we would do. All right, so let's get into the actual SEER review itself. John, what's the what's the overall structure of the review? Yeah, we uh, we set out um, uh, in some ways to model uh, our approach on the way that other programs of assessment take place in healthcare, but essentially as two parts. Uh, one part refers to written guidance and one part refers to performance. So we're looking for things that are written down uh, and we're going to come in a minute to what those things are in terms of policies and educational materials. Uh, but we, we're looking for resources uh, like that that an organization is committed to and provided for everybody who works there. Uh, and then, as best we can, how that is lived out on a daily basis. So, yeah, two parts. All right. So we're going to talk about this in terms of written guidance and performance. So let's let's do the written guidance first. So the first element of the written guidance is an institution's policies. So, John, yeah. what is the policy section of the SEER review examine? Yeah, policies are, are very important because policies set the standard in healthcare. Uh, there are all kinds of rules uh, and regulations uh, about everything from uh, quality standards, state safety standards, you name it. Policies are important, and they're important in the area of Catholic identity uh, and ethical integrity. Uh, so we want to know how an organization sets the standard across the board, uh, so to speak, so that people understand um, the expectations, they understand the standards uh, that, that the Catholic moral tradition provides. And again, this is the good thing about the ethical and religious directives. Uh, they have six parts which start with um, social accountability and some elements of organizational ethics. You know, one, one example of organizational ethics is that everybody who works at a Catholic healthcare organization has to understand and commit to following the ethical and religious directives. Um, you know, so that, that's one thing. But then there, there's a part on spiritual care. There's a part on, you know, clinical encounters, essentially. There's a section uh, about ethics at the beginning of life and procreation. There's a section on issues at the end of human life. And then a section on organizational partnerships. It's, you might call it organizational ethics, but not so much internal, but in relating to other organizations. So we're looking across the board, uh, and I would just put it broadly for two things. You know, one thing is... It relates to substantive guidance. Uh, when an organization makes a policy, uh, is it when it comes to presenting the teachings of the church or what the ethical standard is in light of those teachings, is it uh, clear uh, and complete uh, and accurate? That's the first thing, you know, with regard to substance. I mean, do they actually <laughs> completely and accurately present the standard? The second part has to do with how the ERDs are treated in a policy. So um, what we're looking for ideally uh, is that the ERDs are mentioned whenever possible. And that doesn't always happen. And I think the way a lot of organizations have, have thought about this is they'd say, well, sure, on some issues like sterilization, 
maybe uh, nutrition and hydration at the end of uh, at the end of life, and of course abortion. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's very specific Catholic teaching, and we're going to say that. But there are lots of other issues in healthcare that would seem more mundane, like informed consent, uh, which has been a big deal, I would say, especially since the the 1970s. They'd say, well, everybody sort of knows the three elements of informed consent, and everybody agrees that this is an ethical standard. So, you know, we don't really have to mention the ERDs there because it's it's well covered, you might say, in general ethics. But in fact, the ethical and re- religious directives have, I think, three specific directives that bear on informed consent. And, and apart from what they say, we think that when the ERDs provide relevant and specific guidance on an issue, even if it's not uniquely Catholic, that an organization should bring that into the policy standard because they, they are citing other standards. Uh, sometimes there are standards from uh, Joint Commission Accreditation, which is the way hospitals get accredited. Sometimes it's uh, state law or federal law. And, you know, there might be some other standard that they might find out there, you know, from a medical organization. And those are all fine as long as they're consistent with the ethical and religious directives. But just as a matter of principle, we want to see that they bring the ERDs in Again, whenever the ERDs have guidance that is specific to an issue. And uh, we love to see the ERD cited specifically, included as an authority among other authorities. And then uh, if if an organization is going to talk about them, that they quote the ERDs rather than paraphrase them. Because we found that when people try to paraphrase them, Sometimes the meaning gets a bit obscured. So, yeah, that's the story in policies. Yeah, as you were uh, as you were talking, I was I, well. I should, dis- you know, in full disclosure, I'm I involved with the with the SEER reviews here at the NCBC, and in fact, the policies and the educational programs, which we'll talk about in a minute, are some of the areas that I that I focus on. And and I've read a lot of policies over the past. Uh, past year plus uh, doing these reviews. And in fact, actually uh, just doing, just having a person look at all at policies from all different institutions, you really, you can, you can give a much more objective uh, judgment on the policy, so to speak, because you're reading a lot and you're seeing what's, what's similar, what's different. But what I, I wanted to point out is as you're talking about policies that are missing or things that are, are misstated, I, I just numerous, um, Institutions that we reviewed, I, I just uh, as examples, uh, directives fifty six and fifty seven on ordinary and extraordinary means of care, they're oftentimes not there, and, and and I've been struck how many times that you know hospitals will sort of refer to ordinary and extraordinary means of care and, and how they're important for making end of life decision making, but the policies aren't there fifty six and fifty seven they're never you know they're never identified or. Uh, Directive 58, when you're talking about uh, nutrition and hydration, that's a policy that, or excuse me, that's a directive that's often um, paraphrased in a policy, but it's it's not paraphrased quite correctly. And, and I, I'm just thinking numerous times making comments about, um, you know, directives 56, 57, 58, and just as a real practical example of what you're talking about there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, something we hear from time to time is, well, we all know that, you know, words to that effect, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. we're, all, we're all Catholics, we all know that, or, or you know, we've always done it a certain way, which sort of relates to we all know that because we've done it this way for a very long time. And, of course, you know, we, we, we do love to hear that everybody knows something, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's good. But, but, you know, uh, still, it's uh, very helpful, I would say, uh, for organizations to double check. Um, And I would say, uh, 
to make sure that people know the standard. Uh, there, there, you know, the law is a kind of a teacher. I can't remember who said something like that, but but it's true. You know, when when you pass a law, when you do something like that, um, it actually teaches people about the standard itself. And the same would be true about bringing the ERDs formally. Uh, into the policy setting and and putting them at the end of the uh, often there's a, a section at the end titled references or something and that's where like the main authorities are named uh, you know it's important to put them there so people say oh you know there, I see there are a few authorities what are the ERDs you know they're there and policies have to be reviewed and revised from time to time. And if the ERDs are there, that's a, that's a place, you know, when people are revising to say, okay, any updates? Because as you know, the ERDs are updated from time to time. They were updated in 2018. They're updated in 2009, 2001. And um, anyway, it's a good thing to have them in there. It's one of our goals. Yeah, and I'm also thinking too, there have been examples of institutions that have, based on the SEER review, have said, oh yeah, we need to bump up these policies. And we've seen actually improvements in policies uh, based on this review. So that's a good thing as well. So all right, move on. Second element of the um, of the written guidance is educational programs and materials. So John, what kind of educational programs and materials does CIR evaluate? Yeah, and um, one thing I, I like to, to note here from my personal experience is how important education is in healthcare. I was really struck by that. I, I worked in a hospital for six years and in multiple ways, everything from new employee orientation to annual educational updates to encouraging employees, especially leaders like managers and directors to go on and get master's degrees and things like that. Education is absolutely critical. Um, if you set a policy standard, how do people know and understand it? And the answer is through education. So anyway, it's just a very important area in healthcare. And, you know, I, t I take great heart from that because Obviously, we, we have to teach about our standards. So we look at four areas of education, uh, just knowing, in a sense, what goes on in healthcare. So one is basic education on Catholic identity uh, and, and the ERDs, uh, the, the ethical issues. And that often is provided at new employee orientation, uh, can be provided in a handbook uh, for employees, things like that. Just how are the basics covered? I remember uh, doing many presentations at new employee orientation, John, and I'm sure you did as well in your in your yeah, time. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah. And um, second, we say, well, what additional uh, ethics education is provided? And there often is, you know, there again, uh, ongoing education in a healthcare organization uh, is just constant. So, I mean, is there just are there regular programs uh, on education or is an organization educating key audiences like, like their physicians, whether they're employed or, or docs who have privileges, like nurses maybe who are in the ICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, something like that. So, you know, we want to know, do you do it? If you do, uh, show us how, something like that. Uh, a third area is education for the public. Uh, and again, that's just something that goes on. Uh, educating about the organization, about issues in healthcare, uh, issues at the end of life. Uh, organizations are doing this all the time. And finally, there's leadership education. And it's our experience that organizations take time, especially as they are um, bringing people up through the ranks, you know, hiring on a new manager or director or taking somebody from, you know, essentially a staff position into uh, the management, uh, into management, into that first level of leadership or up higher than that from manager to, to director, from director to VP, something like that. Organizations tend to educate uh, for people in leadership in a different way. And we think that's great. 
And we think that's a time <laughs> to educate those leaders better about the ERDs. So that's the that's the uh, how, what we examine. Yeah, I just I like to follow up a bit on the on the leadership question. And I've heard, and I, I don't have certainly don't have any hard evidence for this, but I've I've heard from different people that people who are are coming into leadership positions in Catholic healthcare increasingly are either a not Catholic or B, have not been well-formed in the teachings of the church. Now, there's a, you know, whole generations of Catholics who have not been well-formed in the teachings of the church. But I'm wondering, in your experiences, have, have, have you found this to be the case? And, and if so, it would seem that it would really underscore the necessity of very, uh, a very good education for leadership. Well, it's certainly the case, and uh, it, this is true. In a, it's true for everybody. Uh, it's certainly true, uh, you know, for Catholic healthcare organizations. I think it would be true for Catholic schools trying to hire teachers and mm-hmm. finding Absolutely. that you know, you're trying to find someone qualified and who's going to do a good job, and they're not always Catholic. I even follow uh, the Adventist, uh, sometimes issues in Adventist healthcare. Of course, Seventh Day Adventists uh, really into healthcare, not quite as much as Catholics, but they have a chain of hospitals, and they significantly try to keep up a distinctive approach to healthcare, and they struggle uh, to get you know faithful Adventists you know into leadership positions. So it is a struggle for everybody all the time. And uh, of course, there, you know, you might say, well, there are some non-Catholics who are coming in. Uh, There are Catholics who are not, you know, well-formed or educated. And there there are former Catholics, you know, I mean, people who have, who have really left the faith. And, you know, we, well, everybody, I suppose, tries to do the best job they can. But again, that's why it's important to have clear policy standards and then to say, you know, explain the reasons why and what those standards mean. And, and uh, there are, there's certainly a need to do that. And we try to look at how an organization is handling those issues. Yeah. Yeah. So briefly, John, what makes for a good educational program or good educational materials? And, and, and how does the SEER uh, score or evaluate education programs? Yeah, um, many of our standards revolve around, around us trying to to assess: is the information correct? Is it complete uh, and accurate? Those kinds of things, and and of course, making allowances maybe for the fact that you know a new employee orientation, you know, you only have a few minutes uh, or something like that, um, and also. We are uh, looking for, and I can't remember if I said consistent, but also constructive as well. And maybe I'll just say a a quick word on consistent and constructive. Uh, One thing we found in evaluating a number of different systems in hospitals is that um, sometimes they like to accentuate one part of Catholic teaching uh, much more than others. And uh, a lot of times this comes down to the social teachings of the church. And those are certainly important in healthcare. I mean, healthcare is a, it's a complex organizational endeavor. Uh, and it is something that takes place in our very uh, complex society. So the, the social teachings of the church definitely come in. But in addition uh, to the social teachings of the church, there are teachings on the dignity of human life, uh, again, from its earliest moments uh, to its final moments. Uh, those teachings are utterly distinctive and quite applicable in healthcare. And yet, we've seen where you don't get a, you might say, a, a presentation on, well, here are the social teachings of the church, here are the teachings on respect for human life. Of course, a whole other area is respect uh, for human sexuality, for procreation, and even the human body. Um, and, and that's an entire set of teachings. And, of course, you can teach a course, you know, uh, which I have in the past on, oh, yeah. uh, you know, sexual morality and human procreation, and of course, marriage and all these things. 
these issues come up in healthcare a lot. So um, one thing we're looking for is consistency. It's great if they if they teach and really accentuate the social teachings of the church. We want them to just be consistent in addressing the other areas and, and then constructive because sometimes, you know, you can present something uh, in a way that is, whether it's apologetic or negative, um, you could say, well, the church has this teaching, but oh man, it, it is so far out of step with our culture, or we all struggle, you know, to, to understand or follow this teaching. Uh, sometimes I would say I've seen the ERDs presented as like a very complex legal code. And this, this really isn't for everybody. Uh, you know, like don't, don't try to apply this yourself. Always call the, you know, the, the mission VP or something. And again, this is a matter of, of sort of consistency and, and constructive being constructive here, because when it comes to the social teachings, they would say, these are a gift, you know, these, these are amazing, you know, these give us identity, these make us unique. And we think they, they ought to be constructive when they present all of the church's moral teachings. And, you know, sometimes we, we pick up on that. Anyway, that's, yeah. that's how we uh, evaluate that. Yeah, I'm I'm holding my tongue here because I could. There's so much I could say about this, but in the interest of time and not getting myself in trouble, I think we should probably move on. So. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> so the third uh, and final element of the written guidance is collaborative arrangements. So, John, what are collaborative arrangements? Yeah, they are sort of a unique set of partnerships in healthcare where a Catholic organization and a non-Catholic organization are teaming up in some way to provide healthcare services. So, you know, it's not just business ethics in general, because you get into all kinds of, of things like uh, not, not giving bribes or, or kickbacks or, you know, th those kinds of things. And obviously healthcare organizations are purchasing all kinds of stuff from, you know, personal protective equipment to sheets, uh, you know, the laundry service might be in-house or it might be, you know, outsourced. Uh, you know, there are just so many things. However, there are times when organizations, um, they might co-sponsor and really cooperate um, a, a hospice and palliative care uh, organization. Uh, that's how it worked in the, uh, the city that I I was in that that was a shared endeavor. They might uh, share and build uh, like a, a outpatient or ambulatory surgical center. Um, they might merge, if you will, and try to run two organizations. You might say almost in a in a business way as one, so they get economies of scale. Uh, as opposed to, you know, trying to be organizationally separate in every way. You know, the world of healthcare is just incredibly complex. So when organizations are doing this, Catholic and a non-Catholic, and they're, they're sort of teaming up, you know, there are all kinds of ways they can do this, get into all kinds of legal, you know, details. But, um, well, we evaluate those for two reasons, I would say. Um, one is there can be issues of cooperation and evil if the one organization, the non-Catholic organization, is providing interventions that are intrinsically evil, whether it's elective abortion, whether it's uh, assisted reproductive technology, uh, sterilizations, you name it, they might be doing that. And now they want to team up in some way with the Catholic organization. The question is, is that part of the, the shared endeavor or not? So we, we look to make sure, just in part, that the cooperation uh, is not wrong, unethical. And then there can be issues of scandal. Uh, there can be issues of confusion uh, in the church. Uh, again, I mean, you can almost imagine if a if a Catholic hospital, you know, this doesn't happen, but if they teamed up with a Planned Parenthood clinic or something, 
Now, maybe they only agreed to, um, uh, I don't know, sort of uh, share data services or I don't know what. Um, but the point is, people would say, why are you having anything to do with those people? You know, it, it really undermines our consistent uh, message of respect for human life. So we're, we're looking at those organizations. These are really complex deals. Um, sometimes, you know, they've been entered into under past bishops or past CEOs, you know, and maybe they're not really valid after all. The church just updated its teaching in this area in 2018. Uh, and there was actually a, a document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in 2014, which set up that 2018 revision. So, what you know, we're looking back to say, are you compliant with the most recent authoritative standards? Very good. All right. So let's move into the second main part of the C review, which is performance. So the first element of the performance section deals with data analysis. So, John, what is the data analysis section of a SEER report and why is it why is this review so important? Yeah, you know, as I said several minutes ago, not only are we trying to, to figure out how an organization sets the standard and, and educates, but how do they live it out in their daily life? And it turns out that something that's happened in healthcare probably over the last 30 years or so can help us to do it. So, in the, of course, in the good old days, uh, this was actually before I was born. Doctors used to make house calls, you know, they would sort of come by and see how people were doing. <sighs> haven't done that for a long time. But even after that, you go to the doctor and maybe if you really had something wrong, well, the doctor's always keeping medical records probably. But um, but sometimes, you know, a doctor would see someone in the old days and and say, you know, and the patient would say, what do I owe you, doc? And, and the doctor would say, ah, don't worry about it. You know, he knew the person was older or poor or something. You know, it was more informal. I tell you, once the government got more involved in healthcare with Medicare and Medicaid significantly, well, of course, once the government starts paying yeah. for things, <laughs> the costs go up. And then what does the government do? The government says, we need to cut waste. And so a whole system of codes was introduced into healthcare. It's a whole set of codes for diagnosis because, you know, you, you should know what's wrong with someone. You should document that before you do anything. There's a whole set of codes for doctors when they intervene or do stuff. And then there's a set of codes for drugs and devices in healthcare. And the way that this has all worked out in America in particular, you cannot provide a medical service or intervention unless it is documented. What's the diagnosis and what's the treatment? And sometimes, of course, there are secondary diagnoses and, of course, multiple interventions, but you must document everything. And then you must bill uh, accordingly. And the federal, federal government looks very uh, carefully at this because if you cheat, it's possible to make more money. Well, anyway, what does this have to do with Catholic identity and ethics? Uh, someone might be asking at this point. <laughs> they probably <laughs> well, are. They probably are. Uh, I do find this interesting uh, myself just in general. But it turns out that the interventions that the church teaches are intrinsically evil, such as an encounter for an elective abortion for uh, starting, uh, you know, a course of contraceptive pills, for getting a shot of Depo-Provera, you know, every single thing in healthcare has a code. And so what we can do is use these codes to see if a Catholic organization is doing anything that it shouldn't. Now, the federal government is so determined to prevent and then punish cheating if it ever occurs, that they they have really made it clear to healthcare providers that they must code accurately, that there will be serious consequences if they don't, they must attest 
you know that what they've done is accurate and much of this data, especially if it's inpatient care, is publicly available. So anyway, I mean, there there is a, a pretty honest record of, of what happens. And so we will ask for these codes that are related to several key areas in healthcare. I mean, you can't measure everything, but, but in fact, you can measure some things like mm -hmm. direct abortion, for example, like a number uh, of contraceptive interventions, because some of these are a prescription for the pill. Some of them are uh, injecting a shot of Depo-Provera. There are implants. There are patches. I mean, there are all kinds of things. Right. Uh, surgical sterilizations, you know, there are some very specific diagnoses and procedures. Uh, what's being called gender affirming uh, interventions, whether they are prescriptions for drugs or surgery, reproductive technologies and so on. You know, we can ask about these things because there are codes for them and there are even codes. This is actually kind of heartening. Uh, there, you know, there is such a thing as modern fertility awareness based methods of, you know, a woman knowing her fertility and, and controlling it or managing it. And there are codes for that. We look for those codes, too. We actually want to see a lot of those. You know, we really don't want to see any for those other interventions I mentioned. But these give us a chance to look at some very objective data. Uh, these codes are tricky. And, you know, sometimes organizations, well, they try never to make a mistake, but what we do is if we see codes uh, that are of concern, you know, we have a conversation first with the healthcare organization. Uh, we just did this with someone. We said, you know, we saw some things and we want to double check. I mean, we asked for a pretty high level uh, presentation first, but, you know, we can come back and double check in more detail. And, you know, if, if, the, um, if the data holds up, so to speak, you know, we bring this forward as part of the report. Yeah. Would it be safe to say that the data analysis section of the SEER offers an institution or, or, or it offers it offers evidence or proof that an institution is A, following its own policies and B, acting in accord with church teaching? Uh, sure, it does. And uh, one more thing, I guess it's maybe helpful to point out. We asked for three years of data because, you know, if you only ask for one or even two, you can't tell, you can't see a trend, you know, but if you do three, you know, you can see trends and that can be helpful. And, and we have found that some organizations were doing things wrong, but, but we see a positive trend, you know, uh, and that's helpful. Yeah. That's a good thing. All right. So John, let's take a look at the second element of the performance section of the, of the uh, SEER report, and that's the survey responses or narrative section. So what does the SEER review evaluate here? Yeah, that, that's a pretty unique section. And we, we introduced it because, you know, we're, we're asking for a lot of documents. We're asking for data and we wanted to give people a chance to explain, hopefully in, in a short space, um, how, how they go, you might say, from policy to performance uh, on issues such as, and we pick one or two per ERD part, um, you know, how do you uh, teach your clinicians, uh, you know, about following the ERDs, you know, that might be one. How do you implement your policy guidance on sexual assault? You know, that's a pretty complex area. Mm -hmm. At the end of life, how do you explain the teaching on nutrition and hydration and, and integrate that into good end of life care? So uh, the idea for this section uh is to give people a chance to explain, which hope, hopefully they can do. And now I, uh, I know I was told by some of our clients, you know, boy, that took us a very long time. Uh, 
you know, and I get it a bit, I guess uh, we know in the center, we have students write papers as part of our certificate program. And they'll say, I haven't written anything, you know, for, <laughs> you know, for years since I left college or high school or whatever, you know, I haven't, you know, people don't write, you know, and uh, so we understand that um, we, you know, sometimes uh, for some organizations, we have omitted it. But we're still committed to it, I think, as an integral part of the program, because, again, it it helps us to understand how they go to uh, from policy and education to performance. And it's a nice bridge to the to the final uh, piece uh, of the SEER review. And that's the on-site visit. Maybe I should just dive into that. Yeah, why don't you? Let's tell us uh, tell us about the on-site visit and, and what you hope to to learn from it. Yeah, the um, and the on-site visit, the idea of being able to do that to some extent was suggested by the Joint Commission, which is the major accrediting body for most Catholic hospital, well, most hospitals in the U.S. I should say, and of course, a lot of Catholics use them. Um, I mean, they come and they look at records and they do any number of things, but they also interview people uh, about a whole host of standards. You know, uh, a secretary. Uh, can be asked about sort of building safety and, you know, fire alarms and exit, or they could be asked about cleanliness standards and a big deal was not putting coffee mugs under the sink, you know, things like that. But um, anyway, the idea of an on-site visit, well, we got it. And um, and really, it's worked out. And uh, you've been on some on-site visits with yes, me. Yes, I have. It, it's um, it's very positive and intriguing and and many times you know very affirming for us to go and see how an organization lives out its identity on a day-to-day basis in its own space and you know we we look at three things um one, uh, we're just trying to look at their operations and when we get to visit their, emergency department, their ICU, their birthing unit, I mean, the things that they have, and just have a better idea, again, in those places, what it means to, again, implement Catholic identity in healthcare. So so there's that. Uh, the second thing is we get to talk to leaders, and we meet with ranges of people. We'll meet with the senior leaders. We'll meet with members of the ethics committee. We'll meet with department directors or managers. And sometimes we just talk to regular staff members in the hallway uh, or something like that. And we get to hear from them personally what the Catholic identity means, what a difference it makes and so on. And that's a good opportunity. I mean, when you have to explain something in person to somebody, it does make you Think about it. And, and again, we've, we've heard some great things. And, and finally, we look at the environment of care, uh, which is to say we, we look at the building, the rooms and things like that. And we say, how does the Catholic identity come through, you know, in crosses and crucifixes on the wall, in artwork, uh, in different ways? You know, how does this expression come through? Um, you know, and again, uh, we see, you know, see some really innovative things. We see some beautiful chapels. Um, and, and again, it's very affirming. I would say apart from those three things and each of which we try to assign a score to just, you know, is it there? Is it strong? Is it well done? Whatever that is, that that on-site visit really helps us to, to bring all of the report together. Uh, because again, we've read a lot of documents. Sometimes we have telephone calls or email conversations looked at data, but but when you can see the place and meet the people, it it really just helps it all to come together. So that that's the last part of the thing and, and in some respects, yeah, the most interesting and fun. Yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's my favorite part of this year program as well. And and to just add on to what you said, you know, we do have we read all sorts of documents, phone calls, emails, everything else, but I think what the onsite visit really does is help to personalize the system uh, or the institution to us, and and that it really is invaluable to to get the perspective of the people, you know, personally, and and have that interaction and really see what they're doing and what they're seeking to accomplish, you know, on a daily basis. So that is, yeah, 
a site visit is it's it it really does bring things together. So with all of that, so we've completed now the various section reviews. What's the process for reporting results? Uh, yeah, a, a cu- couple stages of the thing. First of all, um, we produce a comprehensive report. And so we talked about uh, six different elements here, three elements of written guidance, three elements of performance. Each element uh, gets a kind of a chapter section in the report. Um, so, you know, each one, and there's a lot of detail, uh, especially to the policy chapter, probably a lot more than the on-site visit. But uh, so each element gets a chapter of the report. Uh, we put together uh, an executive summary uh, in which we try to highlight the key strengths or achievements of an organization. We That also gives us the time to focus some attention on what we think are opportunities for improvement. And if there's anything outstanding or unresolved, we can list that there. Uh, anyway, we, we try to make the report as user-friendly as possible, especially knowing it's, it's going to go to a very busy bishop uh, who, who has all kinds of details thrown at them all the time. So we try to make it feasible. We take that whole report, and the first thing we do is we send it to the healthcare organization. And, you know, a Catholic identity is complex. Uh, our review process is different than maybe their, their old uh, internal or, or newer internal systems. Uh, so we give them a chance to see... Uh, our conclusions, but how we have put together all the data. And we ask them two questions. We say, have we missed something? Have have we misunderstood anything? Let us know. And we give them time and they can go through the thing and come back and say, sometimes they say, oh, actually, you know, we, we discovered this policy, you know, in a drawer. And uh, <laughs> you said we didn't have one, but we do, you know, or, you know, we talked about the data before, you know, we think that, you know, wow, we think, you know, there's something maybe not right there. Can we discuss that? So we try to, to make that, uh, we try to make it so they are presenting their strongest case. And again, that we're not presenting anything that isn't accurate and in the proper context. Once that is done, uh, we, you know, we send a copy to the bishop, identical copies to the bishop and to the healthcare organization. And at that point, we encourage them, of course, to read it carefully, ask us if they have questions, but also to take that report and make it uh, one of the main foundations, uh, certainly a strong foundation for working better together and strengthening a local Catholic healthcare ministry. We uh, offer to be a part of that process, and some bishops have taken us up on that, and that's a good thing. Uh, so anyway, that's the process of bringing all this together. All right. So why, John, then is SEER important for the future of Catholic healthcare? We're trying to bring this all together. What? Why do you think it's important for Catholic healthcare? Yeah, I, I can remember, you know, again, working in Catholic healthcare for six years in a mid-sized city and a, it was a, a mid-sized hospital, but we had everything. I mean, we had an ICU, we had a birthing unit, we had a helicopter, <laughs> we had a, you know, it was pretty cool. I never got to ride on it either as a patient or as a a tourist. Uh, so anyway, but you know, we had all this stuff. It just struck me as I worked there for six years, we faced so many challenges. Every year was a budget challenge. We had a competitor, you know, we were trying to survive, you know, just in terms of keeping patients coming through the door. Uh, there was a union at the hospital. The nurses had, had formed the union. Uh, once every three years, they would threaten to go on strike. Uh, the joint commission would be coming. We had to do a new strategic plan. Of course, you know, sometimes old leaders departing, new leaders coming. There was so much going on. And what I saw was, I mean, it was all interesting. It was all great. But how was it that the Catholic identity and our ethical standards were seen and understood as both the foundation on which we stood and as the 
the orienting pole star, if you will, that, that would help us to put all those other challenges into perspective. And I would say healthcare, uh, it's amazing because at any given time, you could, I'm sure you could go back 50 years and say, uh, healthcare is very complex. Uh, there's a lot of technology. There are a lot of, you know, persons, patients, you name it, physicians, there's technology. And it would always seem complex and very busy, but it just seems to get more complex and busier with many, many standards to live up to and many pressures, uh, whether it is from professional organizations like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists or from patient groups. Uh, so many pressures, you know, where people are trying to get out of healthcare what they want or say, this is what healthcare is. And in fact, this is what ethical healthcare is. If Catholics are going to maintain a distinctive Catholic healthcare ministry, they have to be clearer than ever uh, about what our ethical standards are. We have to teach them more effectively. We have to monitor and measure them to, uh, to ask, uh, are we losing ground or not? In fact, we really should be asking how are we making progress every year, you know, or every strategic plan period, which tend to be three-year uh, increments, you know? And I think in the past, as busy as everybody was, and with requirements sometimes being legal, you know, and then having a kind of a, a force because of that, or financial, and those have a force all their own, you know, the, the, the plan, uh, the performance of measuring and, and really upholding Catholic identity has been a challenge. So I would say if we're not only going to survive but thrive in the years ahead, we have to be stronger than ever. We have to be better than ever. And the, the SEER program, uh, it's the best program I've seen. Uh, that would help Catholic organizations to do that and to do that uh, in conjunction with their local bishop. Brings me to the, our penultimate question. So if a bishop is listening to this podcast, how does he initiate a seer review in his diocese? Well, the first thing uh, we ask bishops, and sometimes it's their liaisons to do, is to call us. Um, we, we like to get a sense of you know, how large the Catholic healthcare ministry is, um, you know, of the bishop's goals and objectives. And, um, you know, we like to talk through the process for a couple of reasons. It's a big endeavor uh, for the bishop to take on and a Catholic uh, organization to take on, um, you know, and, and they should be prepared for it. Uh, and, of course, it's a big endeavor for the NCBC. Uh, we, you know, in a sense, keep pushing ahead, and we try to respond to requests and to needs, but we're at a point where we really have to schedule ourselves how these things will take place in the future. So, uh, yeah, call us, email us. Uh, we, we get these inquiries from time to time. Sometimes they're just, I heard about it, tell me more. And sometimes they are, we want to do this, you know, come and talk to us. And, and we always like to prepare everybody, uh, the bishop in his office and the healthcare organization uh, with direct conversations before we start off. Very good. What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Well, I, um, you know, uh, I think you and I would agree it's a privilege to work at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. It is. And to address the issues we do uh, and really to be able to bring the resources of our faith to bear. So, and to do that in this way in healthcare, you know, we help people one on one in calls and emails. And some of the issues we're dealing with are, you know, very specific and challenging clinical issues. But to, to try to strengthen the Catholic healthcare ministry as a whole, to try to do that for a big organization, uh, really is a privilege. And when we visit these people, when we get engaged on a project, we always find amazing stories, you know, of what people are doing. Uh, they really are making a distinctive difference in their communities. 
Um, sometime we'll just have to put together a podcast where we tell some of these stories. <laughs> I think it would be great. But, um, you know, to come into that and then to bring in uh, our area of expertise, which, which is the ethical and religious directives, and to say, let's strengthen this for a challenging future. I mean, it's, uh, it's a great thing to do. Uh, it's really exciting. Um, you know, I, I look forward to this continuing to grow. So anyway. Very good. John Brahaney, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. All right. Great to be here, Joe. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you have suggestions for future topics, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J-Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcast, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening today, and may God's peace be with you.